Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to the Film Brits Podcast. I'm your host Trilby, the detective Frank Drebin of film criticism and it has been an incredibly busy week in the world of movie news. Not necessarily because of the amount of press releases or the amount of news items dropped but because we have had a boat load of trailers. So many that I'm not even going to be able to get round to them this week. For example, we've had trailers for films like Bad Times at the El Royale or the remake of Suspiria, but I'm not going to be able to get around to absolutely everything. So I'm just going to talk about some of the more popular trailers, some of the ones that I'm personally a bit more interested in, or at least the ones that I have quite a bit to say. Because, ladies and gentlemen, join me in Trailer Palooza 2018. I'm going to be going through these trailers in no particular order. There's kind of like a chronological order, kind of, but I can't remember exactly when these trailers dropped. So we're going to begin with Bumblebee, which was the first trailer to drop in Trailer Palooza 2018 in this incredibly hectic and busy week in movie discourse. This is a film that is directed by Travis Knight. It is a it is a prequel, sorry, a prequel to the Michael Bay Transformers franchise, which after Transformers The Last Night, uh, rather tepid box office reception, it's kind of the end of this universe even though Transformers The Last Night teased a sequel and it had a whole setup for Unicron and these whole other things that's not going to be happening anymore it looks like Hasbro and Paramount are going to be rebooting this franchise and what we have here is a very awkward kind of maybe potential in-between transitional film because what was originally going to happen was that Bumblebee in The Last Night was portrayed as a character who didn't arrive on Earth at the beginning of the Michael Bay Transformers in 2007. He appeared on Earth much earlier. He was fighting Nazis in World War II. And what we have here is a prequel that is set in the 80s when Bumblebee was still on Earth, he couldn't talk, and the adventures he got up to. And that was going to lead into the Michael Bay series, and then they continue that and maybe end it and then reboot it. But now we're definitely getting a reboot at some point in the near future, helmed by goodness knows who. It's all going to be hinging on Bumblebee's performance, how that how it does well critically, how it does well commercially. And if Bumblebee doesn't make a billion dollars, that's fine, because this film is being made for roughly half the budget of a typical Michael Bay Transformers movie, and in a way that shows, this is clearly a much smaller scale film. The big action piece money shot, for lack of a better term, is Bumblebee catching the helicopter, which by Transformers standards, by Michael Bay Transformers standards, is quite tepid. However, it fits in the context of this trailer, and it seems like it's going to fit in the type of story they're going to tell, because I got a really great vibe from a really great vibe from this trailer. I got the idea that this is maybe a, a cut down compressed version of the first Transformers movie, a relationship between a boy and his dog, a boy in his car, or in this case a girl and her car. And that we even had some of the um, audio from, I forget his name, I feel bad because he only passed away quite, quite recently, the car salesman in the first Transformers movie saying that it's a mystical bond between man and machine, uh, getting your first car, which was a pretty nice callback, but it makes me sad because it reminds me that this is set in a universe that is basically broken beyond repair because of Michael Bay and that creative team. And the vibes I got from this were, were was that first Transformers movie was scaled down and more intimate and by the looks of it better told. And the Iron Giant, 
which is a wonderful animated film by Brad Bird done in the, the in the late 90s early 2000s can't remember exactly the year but it's it's a terrific animated movie that bombed at the box office at the time if you get the iron giant on blu-ray they they they've released the signature edition on blu-ray which is the original film but with about 2 or 3 minutes of of extra footage in it there's a wonderful documentary about the making of the iron giant and that's a w- wonderful documentary about the, about what happened with the film why it didn't perform well how Brad Bird got into the animation industry it's a wonderful documentary really uh, recommend you check it out if you like animation or just want to get into the film business it's a great documentary uh, but anyway the, the Iron Giant film is a relationship between a boy and his giant 100 foot tall robot that doesn't want to be a gun and I, I got that vibe with this Bumblebee trailer this was a good trailer I really liked it you got the sense of awe when uh, Hayley Steinfeld who looks really good in this film was underneath the car and Bumblebee's face lit up and transformed above her you got that sense of awe and the the design of Bumblebee, how he, yes, he's a VW Beetle, but the way you can recognize that silhouette, you can see how the intricate parts of the car, like from the bumpers and the headlights and the rivet, how it actually comes together to form this uh, like 10 to 15 foot tall robot. You can see the logistics in that, whereas with Michael Bay's films, it was just a hodgepodge of metal. Even when you saw Starscream in one shot as he becomes a, a plane, he, he transforms from a plane into a, his robot form mid-flight, you can see the logistics and the parts coming together, which was uh, which you rarely saw in the Michael Bay films. These look like coherent uh, very like marketable, interesting designs. Which, if you want, if you liked this film, you can imagine going out and buying a Bumblebee transforming action figure and actually seeing, maybe being able to watch the film and say, "This is how the 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 toy transforms." We only got a couple. We only got like one shot of John Cena and other members of the supporting cast. But this is mainly the Bumblebee and Haley Steinfeld show. Who she's playing Charlie Watson, who's uh, she's got her first car. She goes to buy. She's drawn to this VW Beetle, which has got a, a beehive underneath it, which I thought was cool. She tries to get him to speak using a Rick Astley is never going to give you up on a cassette tape, which was I thought I thought that was a pretty funny gag. So yeah, I, I've got quite high hopes for Bumblebee, especially since it's directed by Travis Knight, who this is his first live action film, I believe. He was working with Leica Animation. He was a producer and animator on Paranorman and the Box Trolls, and he made his directorial debut with Kubo and the Two Strings, which was one of my favourite movies of 2016. It's a wonderful, beautiful animated movie with real heart and and passion and great storytelling and wonderful, uh, memorable characters, and I'm hoping he brings that across to Bumblebee. And as long as you've got a great storyteller and you have a, a strong technical team backing you up, this Transformers franchise could go really, really far. And when you have a, a filmmaker like Travis Knight and you have the animators of, uh, over at Paramount and Industrial Light and Magic who have been doing, uh, admittedly, terrific work in the Transformers franchise in terms of animation and sound design, that it's just that that creative vision was being honed into something like that's really not worthwhile or worthy of their talent. When you have that combination, you could have something really, really special. The only Transformers we saw here were Starscream and Bumblebee. However, we're going to be having uh, Transformers like Barricade. We could possibly have Optimus Prime in the film. So this uh, this trailer was keeping its uh, the film's cards quite close to its chest. But I'm looking forward to it. I'm curious as to whether or not December t- 2018 is the best release date for this type of film. 
if this was released in summer with such humble aspirations. Much like Solo, a Star Wars story, it might get cannibalized by other films, maybe even by the same studio. But in December, it could work out. This doesn't quite strike me as a holiday Christmas film, but maybe a winter or fall, like later in the year, maybe that type of release date could do it good, depending on what it wants to do, depending on what its aspirations are. And it'll be interesting to see whether or not the like the behind the scenes changes over at Paramount and for all Spark Pictures and the Michael Bay Transformers franchise, whether or not they thought, okay, we, we actually really like what we're seeing here. Test screenings are great. We like the film. Let's do a couple of reshoots and establish this as a brand new reboot or something to change the timeline. It might be smart to just this this is the first live action transformers movie without michael bay this could be an interesting place to start a rebooted universe but time will tell it always does so the next trailer is for the disney animated film ralph breaks the internet colon wreck it ralph 2 and i liked the first wreck it ralph film i thought it was a really solid animated movie It wasn't Disney's best and brightest, wonderfulest animated movie, but there was some heart there. I really liked John C. Riley and Sarah Silverman's relationship, and I admit, towards the end of the film, I got a little bit teared up as as Ralph's about to do that, you know, final, like, wreck it, smash that punch, and he's like, I'm bad, but that's good. Um, It really teared me up. There was a lot of great, there was a lot of things to like about uh, about Wreck-It Ralph uh, 1, but for Ralph Breaks the Internet, Wreck-It Ralph 2... This trailer and the trailer, the teaser trailer that preceded it a few weeks, a few months ago, um, kind of left me a little bit cold. I, I The film looks good, the animation looks solid, I don't doubt the cast and the creative team that much, but like with this trailer and the first one, what's the story here? And I'm not wanting a trailer that reveals everything, I'm not wanting a trailer that says, this is the themes of the movie, this is every plot point, this is exactly what it's about, but... Judging by... We've, this is the second trailer for the film. We've had no plot other than uh, Ralph and Vanellope go to the internet. That's all we've had. We've had vignettes. We've had sketches. We've had uh, some some jokes. We've had some cameos. Like In this film, we even had... Uh, we had Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. We had Stormtroopers. We also, of course, had the Disney princesses who are voiced by their... Uh, who are voiced by their actual voice actresses who are still alive. So yeah, that's there's there's a lot of great um, cross promotional marketing, if that makes sense. Even if it is only for for Disney, uh, maybe the inclusion of Star Wars stuff might backfire so closely to Solo a Star Wars story. But yeah, okay, so you're including all of that. But what's the what's the plot? Why are you in the internet? What are you trying to get from the internet? And is there conflict here? Or is it just going to be sketch after sketch after sketch? Oh, you've got the Star Wars world here. You've got the princesses here. You've got the bunny and the, the rabbit. What was it? I can't remember. One of them is being, is being fed ice cream. One of them is being fed pancakes. Funny sketch. No doubt about that. But where's the plot here? And where is um, where's uh, Jane Lynch as the sergeant? Where is Jake McBriar as Fix-It Felix Jr.? where where is the the rest of the cast here it makes me a little bit hesitant it makes me wonder what are they hiding are they hiding some great game changing reveals or are they hiding are they are they or are they really just trying to avoid the plot because they know that this aspect might be more marketable and sellable which is i think maybe giving the franchise um like not enough credit so, and one one other thing that I'm a little bit concerned about is that, is it just going to be Disney-related merchandise and stuff that we're going to be seeing? Yes, we saw things like Snapchat and Twitter. In terms of websites that we see on, 
in the internet when they go and visit all of these places and have their subsequent sketches. But uh, in the original Wreck-It Ralph movie, they had characters from Sega, they had characters from Nintendo and Konami, they had Sonic, uh, they had Bowser, they had uh, Zangief from Street Fighter, they had all of this cross-franchise, like, cross-company cross stuff. Whereas with this, all we're seeing is Disney, we're seeing Eeyore, we're seeing the princesses, we're seeing Star Wars, we're seeing all of this, and, uh, and, and Dumbo is apparently going to be in the film as well. It looks like it's all Disney, and maybe all Marvel as well, which is of course owned by Disney. Apparently Iron Man and Gamora are going to appear in the film, but and also the Muppets. What about the other stuff? Where is there no Mario? Is then I, I know that you go into the internet, but have you been on the internet recently? Gaming stuff is massively prevalent and massively influential on the internet. So where's the gaming stuff? Like, wouldn't it be fun to go onto new grounds and maybe watch a Mario Flash animation that comes to life or something? I don't know. It just feels like they they are changing focus from the franchise from broadly speaking video games and more. Let's just promote more of our Disney stuff in this film. That's the vibe I'm getting from this trailer. I must, I must stress. The film could be great, it could be good, but from these trailers, I'm a little bit underwhelmed. I need to see that there's, a, there's an actual story here, and that it's not just Disney using this as a tax write-off to technically promote and market their own stuff. That would be very disappointing. So, uh, the next trailer is going to be another animated movie, but not from Disney. This is from Warner Brothers. This is the Lego Movie 2, colon, the second part. Why it's not called the second piece, I don't know. That might have been better. Much like Wreck-It Ralph, it should have been called Wrecked the Internet, not, not Break the Internet. And they hung a lampshade on that at the end of, the, of that trailer, but for me it just didn't hit. But anyway, the Lego Movie 2. I, I liked the trailer. I didn't love it. But to be fair, I didn't love the marketing for the first Lego Movie. So, and and that movie wound up being, what, like my second or third favourite film of 2014. Wonderful, amazing animated movie that people were arguing should have not only been nominated, but should have won Best Animated Feature at the Oscars, which of course it was not nominated. Lego Batman also was not nominated, but the Boss Baby was, so it's clear the Academy seems to have some weird Lego prejudice. Maybe, I don't know, the head of the Academy stood on a Lego piece recently that just really, really wanted to hold it against the company. So, the trailer, it picks off a few years after the events of Taco Tuesday, which is where the first Lego movie ended, when the, the sister character of the, the boy who's playing with the Legos gets involved with the Duplo and destroys everything. And now it's a post-apocalyptic Mad Max-style wasteland, and it's really fun seeing Emmett be just a happy-go-lucky, normal, oblivious to everything bad. Because I, I kind of liked how Wildstyle, uh, played by Elizabeth Banks, is saying you can't just keep acting happy when everything is really, really shitty. Not an exact quote and a, a lot of people i think are relating to that this is like the first movie came out four years ago 2014 uh, well this is going to come out in 2019 in february 2019 and back in 2014 there was no trump there was no brexit there was no massive amounts of division so emma is just here like in 2019 going happy go lucky everything's fine everything's great and elizabeth banks is like no everything is not awesome what is wrong with you you can't just keep on acting like everything is still awesome it really isn't that was something i personally related to whether or not that was an actual intended subtext of this trailer and the lego movie too remains to be seen but i i, I found it was pretty funny 
Um, so we're, we're going into space with a Lego Movie 2. What happens is that a, a Duplo invader, like some spaceship, comes along and kidnaps most of the supporting cast. And it's up to Emmett to go into space and rescue them. And by the looks of it, we're going to be continuing the trend of the sister just ruining the game for the young boy who's, who's playing with the Lego pieces. Because one of the last jokes is, uh, welcome to the sister system. And it, the sister system. And uh, it's it seems like they're going to be running with that metaphor. I would like to see more of the the real world, which was just a wonderful bait and switch that the first movie pulled. And I, you can take that into so many interesting directions. It's stuff that was kind of hinted at, like it, it, it had little to no presence in the Lego Batman movie, but they actually had live action segments in the Lego Ninjago movie, which also had like live action appearances from Jackie Chan. And if you want to watch the post credit scene for the Lego Ninjago movie, where Jackie Chan does a stunt where he has to catch like twenty plates. Uh, and not drop a single one, and how many takes it took for him to do it, but he does do it. That's massively impressive. So yeah, the the main focus of the trailer was Emmett and Wildstyle and these new invaders. You got um, like you only uh, briefly saw Will Arnett's Lego Batman, but the the whole cast is returning by the looks of it. So you're gonna have, be having uh, Alison Brie, Charlie Day, Nick Offerman. And and everyone and everybody else returning, but they have very little presence in this trailer. So this is a debut trailer for for a film that's coming out in like seven or eight months' time. So there's going to be more to show. But this was a, this was a solid first impression, and I'm optimistic and really hopeful for the movie uh, because the trailers for the first one weren't didn't blow me away either. I liked them, but I didn't love them, and I liked this trailer but didn't love it. So it's got the benefit of the doubt for me. And one trailer that I think really should have impressed me a lot more than it did was the trailer for Mortal Engines. This is a film coming from uh, it's from Peter Jackson. That he, well, he's a producer of the film. What he does is that he works with all of these animators with with Universal uh, and at Weta Digital, and he picks somebody to be his protege. He had Neil Blomkamp for District 9, and for this one you've got Christian Rivers, who worked as an animator on Lord of the Rings and on King Kong, and worked as a splinter director for the Hobbit trilogy, which is somebody who essentially goes off with like maybe one or two actors to shoot a couple of shots or a scene or some cutaways and things like that. So it's it's somebody that it's not a huge amount of responsibility relatively speaking, but it's so it, it's you need to have a lot of trust in that person to do a good job, much like Andy Serkis was a second unit director for the Hobbit trilogy and filmed a lot of the Legolas stuff. So it, it's somebody that the director has to trust. So Christian Rivers clearly has a lot of trust with Peter Jackson and he is this is by the looks of it his feature length film directorial debut. He's done a few shorts, but this is going to be his uh, his feature film debut and it looks massively ambitious he's also going to be directing the Dan Busters movie which Peter Jackson is also producing so hopefully this works out for him so the premise of the film if you've not seen the trailer is that it's it's the future and life sucks and these all of the cities on the world uh, it's like a Mad Max style desert but all of the cities in the world are on these massive vehicles they are on they're on track they're on tracks they are traveling across the world and london is this massive gigantic city on wheels that is eating other cities and towns and basically building its own empire it's a pretty cool premise massive influences on steampunk clearly um but 
the first teaser trailer looked pretty cool. This one gives us more of the plot. It shows like a, a like a fugitive who's trying to kill Hugo Weaving's character, and uh, she uh, she fails to assassinate him, and and she gets this guy who joins along on the journey. With the exception of like Hugo Weaving in this trailer, most of the cast are relatively unknown. We've also got Ji Hai, Ji Hei, uh, who is uh, like a, le- a leader of a resistance who does some pretty cool fight scenes in this trailer. She is, by the, uh, from what I hear, I've I've no idea what she, I've. I any of, any of her actual stuff but she's a, a south korean uh, singer songwriter and actress so this seems to be her western like mainstream debut by the looks of it and this trailer look, was okay and i'm anticipating the film but this trailer i feel like for a premise like this it needed a big wow moment it needed uh, a blow me away ending it needed an amazing money shot ending which made me think okay this is something i've got to see on the big screen and the story seems to have scale and scope to it but i want to see that on screen i want to see the amazing visuals that i associate with a peter jackson weta digital production i, I want to see like a, a vehicle like a massive vehicle chase of these cities i want to see the scope of this thing and with this trailer i was just not getting it the story itself seems a bit ho-hum, like typical young adult. I appreciate that the formula has been changed where you've got um, Hera Hilmer who plays this uh, the assassin who's trying to kill Hugo Weaving's character. She's doing all this because the Hugo Weaving's character killed her mother as opposed to it being, you killed my father and my father left a briefcase of everything that will advance, advance the plot. You know, like amazing Spider-Man style. And yeah, the whole uh, like daddy's complex that has been a massive trope in fiction for like, particularly the past decade. It's always kind of been prevalent, but it's really a a crux that filmmakers and creatives have been relying on way too much to the point of redundancy and mockability. Um, although I, I doubt the nuts and bolts of the plot will actually change, but it's like, oh, it's not the father, it's the mother this time. So that's uh, there's only so many times they can use that trope like that, and hopefully this is going to be the, one of the last times you see it. So, yeah, I want to see more. Uh, it looks pretty cool. I'm probably still going to be anticipating it and checking it out. I just wanted more from this trailer. The next trailer is a debut uh, trailer for A Star Is Born, which is a remake of a film from the 1930s, which starred, get the names in front of me, Will, uh, William A. Well, oh no, what am I, on? I think it was one of the writers, I'm terrible at reading, uh, starring Janet Gaynor and Frederick March. Uh, I've not seen the original film, and uh, but th- this this was a pretty good looking trailer, and this is a Bradley Cooper movie, he is directing, producing uh, he is co-writing and starring in it, so this is absolutely his passion project, a vehicle he's, want- he's wanting to do, and he's teaming up with Lady Gaga. So the plot is that Bradley Cooper is a country western singer who's really popular and really successful, and falls in love with a, a woman named Ali, played by Lady Gaga, who writes her own music but does not perform it, because she says in the trailer that everybody loves how my music sounds but not the way I look. Even Lady Gaga is beautiful. Fuck off, whoever you are in in the movie. Fuck off. Um, so yeah, it's, and that's the plot of the movie, where. Uh, Bradley Cooper's country western character is going to try and raise her profile and get her singing in front of crowds apparently I've not seen the original and I've not seen the musical which it was adapted in the 50s starring Judy Garland and James Mason or the rock version which starred Barbara Streisand and Chris Christopherson I've not seen any of this I don't know the story but I'm hearing that apparently Lady Gaga's character in the in the movie starts eclipsing Bradley Cooper's character and that puts tension on the relationship you don't get any of that in this trailer this is all the premise the setup and the relationship and the romance between these two and the two seem to share chemistry bradley cooper 
is going full method and like, he is singing and he's doing all of the country western songs playing the guitar that's pretty cool this is a cool trailer i want to see more though and it's clearly trying to aim for a uh, like an oscar style push when it comes out come october november time so we'll see how it goes i like the look of the movie bradley cooper as a director is interesting and intriguing to me i don't think he's directed anything else but this is his 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 proper coming out party by the looks of it so we'll see how it goes and i'm anticipating it i want to see lady gaga do more because what i've seen her in acting wise has impressed me so far this could be a potential oscar nomination and if she wins then that would be like record-breaking i think because of the amount of awards she's won in so many other industries in tv in music that would be great for her uh so and it's also going to be competing with another oscar type movie which we also got a trailer for this week first man directed by damien chazelle and based off of the book first man colon the life of neil a armstrong written by james r hansen it's the true story of neil armstrong played here by ryan gosling and the mission to the moon the apollo 11 mission in 1969 with steven spielberg as an executive producer the film's coming out in october 2018 this trailer underwhelmed me i think out of everything that i'm talking about in the podcast this was one of the weaker trailers and i don't think the film will be bad i think it'll be really good you've got a great cast you've got ryan gosling as neil armstrong claire foy as his wife Corey stoll child uh, kyle chandler jason clark terrific cast i love damien chazelle's previous work i love whiplash with every like part of my cholesterol ridden heart i love la la land as well i'm an ardent defender of la la land and there's nothing in terms of the creative team that makes me worried this is just a movie that i think does it need to be made what will set this apart from so many other spacefaring movies like apollo 13 like gravity like what what about this story apart from the fact that it's a true story is what warrants a big screen adaptation with this type of creative team and this trailer didn't really show me why it was just like this is how neil armstrong landed on the moon and this is what nasa did and this is it and he took the first step and blah 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 what what is there to the story i i i'm not going to claim to be an expert in the apollo 11 mission i don't know the nuts and bolts i don't like we you even had hidden figures a few years ago which was a really interesting take on on like nasa spacefaring movies when it's about the mathematicians who were never talked about it's the actual literal hidden figures but for first man it's like okay this is a true story i could read a book i could look at a wikipedia article what about this movie is gonna make this really worthwhile storytelling and with damien chazelle i have no doubt the camera work is going to be terrific that it's the cinematography is going to be stunning but that's not on display in this trailer like ryan gosling i know is a great actor i'm not seeing much of a performance here same for claire foy what is to this film it's not a bad trailer it's just what is this film what's the point of it apart from let's try and get damien chazelle uh, like he let's see if he can actually win best picture this year let's see if ryan gosling can win best actor this year but this trailer has given me nothing to work with nothing to work with and that's really disappointing i'm hoping to see more i'll give it a chance i'll give it the benefit of the doubt but this trailer really underwhelmed me and going from one claire foy project to the next we have the girl in the spider's web and i know that claire foy is playing elizabeth salander but the the real star of this movie according to this trailer is director fede alvarez who directed don't breathe and the evil dead remake this guy knows his horror he knows his way around a camera he's a terrific storyteller 
and the first scene that I, I kind of miss trailers that just show instead of showing the entire movie, they just show one scene, like a, a condensed scene. It was something that de- that um, that Don't Breathe did as well, where they show essentially the break in and how everything goes wrong, and that was more or less the selling point of one of the trailers. But they had clips of everything else, but that was the main focus of the trailer. And this trailer for the girl in the spider's web did something similar, where you've got Claire Foy as Lisbeth, who is holding this guy hostage, and for all of the crimes he's done and how he's been acquitted or how he's been released from prison early or something. And she's trying to bring justice to the women who he's done wrong by transferring all of his assets into their bank accounts. So, and, and that trailer, this trailer just shows a condensed version of the, what I imagine will be one of the very first scenes of the movie. Terrific introduction, great shots, amazing camera work. You can tell that this guy's got a horror background, even if you don't know the work of Fede Alvarez. And that's what makes him such uh, such, I, like, such an ideal person for this adaptation. As for the rest of the story, I I have not read the book. I have only watched the I've watched the first two Swedish movies, the uh, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo and the Girl Who Played with Fire. I've not watched the Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest, and I've also watched the David Fincher one, which this is completely separate from. It's it's kind of dubious source material because. This is the the fourth book in the Millennium Trilogy, which was originally created by uh, writer Steg Larsson, but he passed away, and this book was written by David Lagerkrantz, who yeah did, who did The Girl in the Spider's Web. So this is something that's very separate from everything else that's been done with the adaptation before, apart from the characters. You're going to be having Sivia Gudnadsson as Mikhail, and Claire Foy is putting on a Swedish accent for Lisbeth. So I, I have no doubt she's going to give a terrific performance, and Claire Foy is outstanding in almost everything she does. But yeah, Fede Alvarez, this is his movie by the looks of this trailer. I I loved the look of it. And even though I don't quite know what the plot is or what the story is going to be or how it would tie into the second or third books in the franchise or if this could be a really an effective standalone story, I was gripped by that first scene. I think that Fede Alvarez is going to do a terrific job with the source material and that Claire Foy is going to be an amazing leading lady. That would be great. Speaking of great, we have, I think, what has been the biggest trailer of the past week. It has been viewed like nearly 50 million times in the past week alone. It is Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. It's directed by a trio of directors. You've got Bob Perchietti, Peter Ramsey, and Rodney Rothman. And it's got a screenplay by Phil Lord. And it is made in part by Phil Lord and Chris Miller, or 2122 Jump Street and the Lego Movie. And Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse... Oh boy, this was a great trailer. I watched this trailer about a day before it actually dropped on YouTube. I watched this move. I watched this trailer when I went to a screening of Jurassic World, and this trailer just arrived unannounced in front of it. And I was like, I've not seen this trailer, I've, and I'm seeing it on the big screen before, like a day or like a few hours before it's even on YouTube. That was bloody awesome. So I really appreciated that. But this trailer, man, wow. Uh, and the the animation and the action and the web slinging and the, the the skyline and the style is outstanding. I, I loved the music as well as the trailer was building when you saw Spider Man fighting what seemed to be an ultimate inspired version of the Green Goblin and Kingpin uh, and and all of these other villains. And Miles Morales Spider Man was hopping over the taxis and there was just the, the odd frame where everything would go yellow except Spider Man. It looked like comic panels come to life. It was a real great striking aesthetic 
And this type of animation, I imagine, was is much cheaper to do than, say, Pixar DreamWorks full 3D style. The frame rate seems slightly lower. You were able to go more abstract with the images. If whatever is out of focus in the image gets what looks to be like a weird after effect, like if you were to watch it through 3D glasses, it looks wonderful. And on the big screen as well, because I saw this before Jurassic World on a big screen, because that Jurassic World deserves a big screen. It looked outstanding. It looked beautiful. But the story it's telling as well. You've got Jake Johnson as a older Peter Parker who is just really... He's just not with it anymore. He's like, oh, this burger's amazing. And then the waiter drops the, the, the receipt down. He's like, you got money on you, right? You got money on you? Which I thought was really funny. You got Haley Steinfeld as Spider-Gwen. And But I what I loved most was the relationship between Miles and his dad, voiced by Brian Tyree Henry. And <laughs> he's in the back of the of the police car being taken to school, and his friends are like, oh, you've been arrested? No, 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 Dad, can you just run the red light? And he's like, nope, other officers may do that, but uh, not your dad. I loved that. It, it it was great, and the 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 ending joke when he's being dropped off at school, and he won't let him go out inside the school until he says "I love you, Dad." That was lovely. That was charming. But there's also stuff like like sprinkled into the rest of the trailer, where he says, "I see the spark in you. It's amazing." And how there's even a scene when it looks like he's going to be confronting him in an alleyway. And he's he's telling him to, to put his hands up. He's got a gun pointed at him. But he doesn't know it's his son. I'm loving this dynamic. And I think that's where the heart and soul of the movie is going to be. The relationship between Miles and his dad. Because the relationship between Miles and his family in the comic books is really complex and interesting. Because you have, I think it's his, it's his uncle who in this movie is played by Mahasha Ali, but it may not go through the same approach that the that the comic book does, understandably so. His uncle's a thief, he's a petty criminal, and his his rest of his the rest of his family is like, no, you you don't have to be like that. You've been accepted in a, into a charter school through a lottery, which is holy shit, America, your country's depressing, your educational systems it, it makes me physically upset. But, yeah, so Miles is accepted into a charter school, and his dad and his family are like, no, you don't need to be like your uncle, you've got a charter school, you've got a chance to get out of here, you've got a chance to make something of yourself. But he also feels this responsibility to save people and be Spider-Man. Miles Morales is a wonderful, compelling character, and I'm so glad he's made his way into the mainstream Marvel comics run, how he's in the mainstream Marvel universe, I think that's wonderful. Because he was, he's great in the Ultimate Universe, but he really shines in the actual proper Marvel Universe. And I'm sure he'll shine in this movie. And part of me is thinking, oh, it's an animated Sony movie. This is clearly a second-tier project. But this trailer, which, like, full disclosure, I think is the best trailer of the week. All, all the trailers I'm talking about this week in this podcast, this is the one that stood out to me the most. I think this is the best trailer. But the way it's being approached and the the heart and the storytelling and the humanity and the animation as well. Because when he jumps off the building and he breaks some of the glass on the window and he's upside down. He is upright but the cityscape is upside down. It looks beautiful. This looks amazing. Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse is one of my most anticipated movies of this year so far. This is coming out in December 14, uh, 2018. I'll have to double-check the uh, English release date. Uh, I'll double-check it now while I'm on the podcast, because that makes for terrific radio, understandably speaking. So it comes out in America in December, so it's going almost head-to-head with Bumblebee. 
And yeah, in the UK, December 14th. So I'm not going to have to wait till next year, which is awesome. So yeah, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. I loved almost everything about this trailer. I hope Spider-Ham is in it. If they're going to be having Spider-Man, Ultimate Spider-Man, Gwen, uh, Spider-Gwen, if they're going to be having all these ones, I hope we also get a, a nod to Spider-Ham. That would be a hell of a lot of fun. But yeah, this this looks amazing. This looks better than Spider-Man Homecoming, but that's not really that high of a bar, relatively speaking. So the next trailer is How to Train Your Dragon, The Hidden World. We're going for another animated movie. And my history with this franchise is that when I, f- I saw the first How to Train Your Dragon in 2010, it was a wonderful, beautiful, amazing animated movie. It was It's one of DreamWorks' best films. And when I saw it, it came out like in the first quarter or like the beginning of the summer in in 2010. And I said, Toy Story 3 has got to run for its it's got it's got to run for its money. But then Toy Story 3 came out and was just amazing in every way. But How to Train Your Dragon is still a beautiful, amazing film. The sequel is just as good. The 2014 sequel is amazing, but it opened during the summer. It opened in competition with 22 Jump Street, and it didn't make as much in its opening weekend as 22 Jump Street. That is a pretty big deal, because it's a, a four-quadrant animated family movie. Those almost always make money, and it went up against a, an, an R-rated comedy, and it, it couldn't compete. So this uh, third film, I'm so glad it is getting a third film, and that uh, DreamWorks and Universal didn't uh, pull the plug on this franchise that they're giving it a, a one final chance to conclude the story it's getting a March release date which I think is a lot smarter for it and this trailer the elephant in the room is the music the Ed Sheeran song Castle on the Hill I love that song I think it's one of Ed Sheeran's best songs if not his best song completely I love Castle on the Hill it's amazing it doesn't belong in this trailer it doesn't belong in many trailers not only does it give me flashbacks to Ferdinand, which I talked about in the last episode of the podcast, it was uh, I watched it on a flight and I gave it a brief review, because Castle on the Hill played during those trailers as well. Not only does it give me flashbacks to Ferdinand, but it it doesn't fit. I When I think of epic dragon battles and this relationship between Hiccup and Toothless, I don't think, you know, driving at 90 down these country lanes. I, I, don't, I don't think that. Go away, stop it. So... This is, but this trailer, apart from that, if you look at it in terms of just how it's structured, the animation, and the theming that's going on, just remove the music from it. It's a great trailer. It's really good. And even though this comes out next March, I think in terms of everything I'm talking about this week, this is the furthest film away. Uh, Lego Movie comes out like February, March time. So it's it's either the Lego Movie or this, but it's still a ways away. But we saw a lot here. We saw a, a look at the villain played by uh, F. Murray Abraham, who's got a really cool voice. I'm looking forward to what he does. And he he seems like an ideal villain to end this trilogy because he's saying he's, he's the one who's been killing all the Night Furies except for uh, Toothless. So having Toothless and Hiccup come face to face with the, um, what's it called? Uh, the root of all your pain, Mr. Bond. No, the author of all your pain, Mr. Bond. Having them come face to face with that, it's an ideal final antagonist for the franchise. But this trailer focused on the, the friendship of a lifetime. And it's a beautiful poster when the, the, the poster that dropped with this trailer. It's a bearded hiccup riding toothless above the water and his hand is skimming across the water. And the reflection is the, the version of him from the first movie, this young boy who found this dragon. And now he's grown up into a man. 
and this this trilogy has done a great job at portraying that growing like that ever-growing relationship and it also has a great link to some of the continuity there's a great shot when hiccup is next to the white fury who is essentially the the female counterpart to to the night fury and the toothless is going to have a girlfriend and uh, hiccup can't ride the the white fury conventionally he he's clung to her side and the reason for that is because he's got the amputated foot he has a a a um, prosthetic limb which changes the way he has to ride dragons and it's because some of the great theming and storytelling that's been throughout this trilogy where um, Hiccup and Toothless are they are similarly disabled Uh, Toothless has got an issue with his back fin right when he crash landed in the first film when he got shot down by Hiccup he lost part of his back fin and Hiccup uh, engineered a uh, a fi- like um, a sail or like a, a, a prosthetic fin on the back of Toothless and it's one that he can control when riding on top of him so ba- th- these two are made for each other in a sense they're ideal they are mirror opposites of each other despite you know species changes and it's been a wonderful like relationship to see unfold over the course of these films and it yeah it's also just like forbid the sentimentality it's also just wonderful to see like disabled representation in, in a film like to see someone who who doesn't have a leg but is still able to be the hero of the story that means a lot to kids who are able to relate to that character and how it's it's an actual part of the story and the character and it influences his day to day and how he has this relationship with toothless it's really wonderful and just to see him he's unable to ride the white fury properly these, this is a creative team who really pays attention to the details, and the animation looks beautiful. The best, like, the best shot of the trailer is when Hiccup fi- throws the sword at the barrels and causes them to ignite, and him and Toothless walk out of the flames. Uh, it's beautiful. Th- these films have been so wonderfully animated, and I was worried with the tepid box office reception to How to Train Your Dragon 2 that they would slice the budget for this one. The The budget for the first film was $165 million. It made $500 million, or 495 uh, the budget for Train Dragon 2 was slightly lowered. It was 145. Oh no, it made more money than I thought. It made 621. It must have done really well internationally because domestically it was a disappointment. So yeah, internationally it did really well. Uh, and this one, we don't quite have the exact budget for it, but I was I was wondering that because of its initial domestic opening weekend and its poor performance there, that they would slice the budgets. But no, this still has a massive scope to it. My one concern is that the hidden world in the title just seems like a copy of the hidden world that we saw in How to Train Dragon 2. It's just the same trope. It's, oh, there's a hidden world of dragons in the second film. And in the third one, oh, it's another hidden world of dragons. Like, There's only so many times you can do that. And there's also the, the TV series, which I, I forget what it's called. It's like a, a series on Netflix or Amazon. Uh, did they have hidden worlds? Probably, I don't know. But this film still looks great. The music aside, the animation's wonderful. The storytelling just looks as great as ever. And just seeing this relationship grow and potentially come to an end in this in this franchise, uh, yeah, I'm seeing this opening day. I'm seeing this opening weekend. This looks beautiful. And the and the final film I'm going to be talking about it was the the last big trailer to drop this week. It was Halloween, directed by David Gordon Green, and. This is a interesting creative team. This is essentially the team behind like the stoner comedies Pineapple Express, Your Highness and the Sitter. Uh, it's also written by Danny McBride, of all people. Uh, but it's coming from Blumhouse, so obviously it's got quite a low budget. But 
this trailer looked really cool. It was filled with some striking imagery, like the the prison courtyard with the crisp, with like the the checkered pattern. The shot of Michael Myers looking at Laurie Strode through the window, but when she shoots, it's it's shown that he was looking at her through a mirror, so he wasn't really there. The final shot when he's in the cupboard that looked really cool. The only concern I have is the characterization of Laurie Strode. And I'm not just talking about the hair because when um it went the very first promotional image, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis had a pixie cut and it looked really really cool. But now her hair is like shoulder length and frizzy. I've nah, the, the, babe, Jamie Lee Curtis, you are you rock that pixie cut. That looked really cool. Anyway, yeah, it's also more tactical, right? Because there's less hair for him to grab if if he comes after you. But I digress. The only issue I have with the trailer is that characterization. That despite it being forty years, she's still training and practicing, getting ready to kill him. Now I understand that after the events of the first Halloween, which would have been really really traumatic. She may keep a gun under her bed or keep a gun on her person at all times for self-defense. However, after 40 years, still getting mannequins and shooting them with a rifle and a shotgun in the in, like, in the forest or in your backyard. I, it, no, it, it, it doesn't ring true. Like, Laurie Strode, yes, in the first film was a fighter and she was willing to, like, to escape and, and take on Michael if necessary. But someone who would dedicate 40 friggin' years to that... Like and still after forty years, but like try and be like, oh, I want him to escape so I can kill him myself. Maybe if this was like Halloween H two O continuity, or but no, it was some random guy who scared the shit out of you forty years ago. It, it doesn't ring true. It only feels like he's a big deal in this universe and in Laurie Strode's mind because he's a big deal to the audience. This in the trailer, the film could justify it wonderfully. In the trailer, it does not ring true. However, I loved the shots. I I liked I, all the shots of Michael with the mask. That looked really cool. The the bit with the teeth was creepy and cringe-inducing. There's a lot to like about this trailer. I just think that Jamie Lee Curtis is being underserved by the, the material that's being presented. But by the looks of it, this could be very different. But yeah, it looks cool. It may have spoiled quite a bit in terms of how Michael escapes, what he does to get the mask back, how, that he comes back to the town to get uh, Laurie Strode, how that, that they even have a face-to-face proper confrontation and she like he tries to stab her, or vice versa. One of them tries to stab the other and they catch the arm. This spoiled a lot, but this comes out in a few months' time, October 19th, 2018. Ideal Halloween movie, like Halloween release date. So yeah, th- this looks good. This, although considering how basic the premise is, that because some guy wants to kill a bunch of people, someone on Facebook pointed out that it's despite the simple premise, this franchise now has three alternative timelines. That's insane, and four if you count the the Rob Zombie one. So uh, a small premise has gone a long way. But just hearing the music, the the John Carpenter theme, he's returning to to do the music for this one. He's executive producing. It's like it's yeah, it, it's cool. It felt right. So I'm looking forward to seeing what they do with the material. I am looking forward to Halloween. So, like I said, my favorite trailer out of out of all of these was Spider Man into the Spider Verse, and my least favorite was First Man. And I did like I did not expect either of those results at the beginning of the week. So yeah, a, a good great trailer can really change everything. And that, ladies and gentlemen, ends Trailer Palooza 2018. When there's another busy week later on in the year, we may do another one of these, so Trailer Palooza continued. But let's get to some patron questions. I didn't have time to get to them last time because of how long and how stacked that podcast was and how much I had to talk about, so 
I'll just do these. We'll do no. We won't do a, a, a lightning round uh, question session. So we'll just talk about the questions that patrons have sent me. And if you'd like to support the podcast financially, if you would like to get an early download of the podcast, then be sure to visit www.patreon.com forward slash Trilby. T-R-I-L-B-E-E. And you can help to support the podcast financially. You can help to support all of my reviews financially. You'll get your name in the credits of any video content that I do. And you'll also get your name in the credits of my upcoming short film, Before He Wakes, a horror drama movie about a couple who have recently moved in with each other for the first time. They've been with each other for a while, and now they've moved in for the first time. And the woman discovers that the man is a walker and talker in his sleep and over the course of the of a couple of nights he starts to become increasingly violent and unpredictable and that's the premise of the short film if you'd like to get behind the scenes vlogs and updates as we do the last couple of days of filming i think it was going to be one more day of shooting i think it's going to have to be two more days of shooting as there have been some rewrites to the script as um as the bigger picture of the movie has come together there have been some rewrites i've heard some of the music being produced being composed for it recently it sounds bloody amazing so if you'd like to to uh, contribute towards that short film, help to get it finished and funded and get your name in the credits of it, then please consider becoming a patron. All you have to do is just donate a dollar just for one month. Your name is in the credits and you can continue being a uh, patron if you want for the foreseeable future, but you only need to ever do it once and you'll have your name in the credits. So the first question comes from regular patron Edward Sweet, who says, uh, bad films that were saved from being irredeemable by virtue of one or two really good decisions or moments. An example I often use is casting Jackie Earl Haley as Freddy Krueger in the Nightmare on Elm Street remake. Not as good as Robert England, but he was still a commanding presence. Um, I'm with you there. I have some issues with Freddy Krueger's characterization in the Nightmare on Elm Street remake, and there's a lot of issues with that film in general. But casting Jackie Earl Haley, good move, good decision. I think he gets a little bit too shouty occasionally, but that's the direction. I'm not going to blame Jackie for that. So that. If you look at that screenplay, and if you see dialogue like, You can't save her! If you see that dialogue written on the page, that's that's how you're going to say it. That's how the director's probably going to interpret it as well. I, I can't blame Jackie Earl Haley. So that's that's a really good example, and that's one I really do agree with. Hmm. As for good decisions or mo- as for good decisions or moments in other films, I'm, these aren't films that I necessarily dislike, but they're films that, by general critical consensus, consensus aren't considered very good. So I'll go for the first Cars movie, uh, which is not is not been very well like received, but I I like it. But I think the moments that almost everyone can defend, or the character that almost everyone can defend, is Doc Hudson, who's voiced by Paul Newman, the, the late great Paul Newman who is this retired racer who has taken refuge and has retired in the, the humble town of Radiator Springs. And no one else in this town knows who he is. But then Lightning, this hotshot racer, comes along. He's like, oh, it's you. You're, you're the fabulous Hudson Hornet. Uh, I, that, that whole subplot, that story arc is wonderful. It, it's top-tier Pixar, in my opinion. And uh, when you had Cars 2, when Paul Newman had passed away and they've got a shrine to him, they've got a museum to him in Radiator Springs, you really feel the loss. You feel his presence is gone. And one of the best things about Cars 3 is that a lot of that is about the legacy of, of Doc Hudson, that they, they carry on his teachings, they meet some people who knew him throughout his life. And that was a really nice touch and a great way to cap off the trilogy. But in the first Cars movie, there's the brilliant scene. It's it's mostly silent. like In terms of, like, there's no dialogue, there's music and sound effects and everything. But the scene when 
uh, Doc goes round the the racetrack uh, in Radiator Springs for the first time. He he takes out the racing tires, puts them on, and then he decides to just go for it. And that whole sequence, it's animated beautifully. The music is great, and he he actually manages to take the the turn on dirt that Lightning, who is basically a pro racer was unable to do and he shows him how it's done he shows that that it's not impossible to accomplish and how he kind of comes out of retirement to coach him and it's not a typical mickey like oh you gotta eat lightning you gotta crap thunder or, or, or like um you know um pete is it pete I think it, it's that mickey parody in the disney hercules movie and you have uh, oh no it's phil yeah phil um that's his name in, in Disney's Hercules. It, it's not that. It's it's a much more like um, a compassionate mentor type relationship, which I really liked. So yeah, Doc Hudson in the first car in the first Cars movie, like great casting from Paul Newman, a great performance, and that whole story arc. It was a breath of, th- of fresh air throughout that entire movie. And I think even some of the people who really dislike that movie will at least say, yeah, I like Doc a lot. I liked Paul Newman. I liked that scene when he goes around the racetrack. I think that's a that's a good example. You've also got some great action sequences in films that are narratively or like generally just considered quite terrible, like the lightsaber duel in A Phantom Menace or the the opening like ten minutes of Revenge of the Sith. And for the most part, a lot of the action scenes in Transformers, the highway chase in Transformers Three is stunning. The the music's amazing, and and, and I understand that a lot of the footage was recycled from the island. I think that's what the film's called. But the fact that it is able to blend in so seamlessly, that's, in my opinion, that's that's actually a credit to Michael Bay and, and, that, uh, and that visual effects team. So yeah, then there was the special effects in those Transformers movies as well. And you've also got the Sandman's origin sequence in Spider-Man 3, which even people who viscerally hate that movie, and I think it's okay, I think it's about on par with, say, Spider-Man Homecoming, but and it's much better than The Amazing Spider-Man 1 and 2, and it lags behind Spider-Man's, you know, the normal Spider-Man 1 and 2. It kind of sits like in that middle bit of mediocrity to okayness, like Spider-Man: Homecoming does. But for um, yeah, the the Sandman's origin sequence when he's torn apart by that weird scientific experiment, and he starts forming, and the music is is beautiful, and the animation of like you see every every grain of sand form together. And he tries to grab that locket with his daughter, who he's the only re- that she's the only reason he's doing this. He tries to grab the locket and his hand collapses. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. It's profound. It's it's really great stuff. And then he is able to to pick it up, and continue feeling motivated. It's it's a beautiful scene. It's it's like dialogue free. The sound effects, the visual effects, and the music carry it to to great effect. And the final question of the podcast is from Tom Monty, who asks, Your thoughts on the Capaldi era of Doctor Who as a whole, and the state that the show has been left in as a result of it. The I'll, t- I'll tackle the, the second bit first, the state of the show. In terms of audience interest, it's like when between seasons 9 and 10, audience interest for Doctor Who, I think, was... Um, at an at an all time low, at least in terms of the revived series. So not all time since since two thousand and five, it was it was probably the lowest it had, it had been. The viewing figures for nine and ten were uh, were pretty low. With the Lie of the Land, or I think it was the third part of the Monk trilogy, being the lowest viewing figures for Doctor Who since it came back in two thousand and five, and and the lowest viewing figures since the Sylvester McCoy era. And so, which is a shame because series ten, while not amazing was easily Capaldi's best, most coherent and consistent season. But what 
has been th- thankfully if, if if Capaldi had one more season or if Stephen Moffat had one more series then that could have been the death of Doctor Who if it had carried on for another series and it just carried on as it was going we could be seeing the cancellation of Doctor Who however with Moffat leaving with Capaldi leaving and Chipnell coming in with Jodie Whittaker and having this whole new branding, this whole new identity and having Doctor Who on Twitch, having a new logo, having a, a new Blu-ray come out and having all this stuff, there's there's new revitalization in the brand. People are taking notice again. It's becoming part of the discussion and pop culture conversation. Whether or not the show is, is good when it comes back and whether or not that it has that sort of success, that's a different issue that I can't quite predict. But in terms of its interest... Uh, I think the the state of the show that was left as a result of the Capaldi era was kind of uh, left redundant and negligible when the end of the Capaldi era also resulted in this massive change in the pop culture conversation regarding Doctor Who. If Peter Capaldi had regenerated and it had been, I don't know, James Nesbitt and Stephen Moffat had continued, then yeah, maybe the series would be would continue to decline. But now that it has had a new lease on life, potentially new in, new audience members who are interested or people who left at the Tenant era or left at the Matt Smith era and now getting back into it, it's regardless of the state of the show that Moffat and Capaldi left it, that might, that might be a complete non-issue when it comes back come October, November time. Uh, so the, I think the the state of the show, that if it wasn't for the fact that it was getting this massive rebrand and restructuring, we could have seen the end of Doctor Who after another season. But casting a woman as the Doctor, having this rebranding and having uh, new merchandise and new avenues, like the whole Twitch thing and having like season 12 come out on Blu-ray, uh, season 12 of the, of the classic series... We're seeing it, we're seeing a change, and we're seeing like no spoilers. So the conversation is is reliant on, you know, the fandom. But the fandom is 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 stretching out. The fandom is finding new avenues, new things to talk about, and is bringing new people in for the most part. And you're going to get terrible people who are like, I hate the fact that a woman has been cast as the Doctor and is trying to drive that sector of the fandom out, which in my opinion, is massively counterproductive. It's like, oh, I want this show to succeed, it'd be great, but I want to drive out a bunch of the audience people, the audience members who are going to be instrumental in that show's success. Like, you can't have it both ways, folks. As for the Capaldi era as a whole, uh, it's it's unfulfilled potential. It's, it's a Doctor who never quite... Uh, until his last season, never really stuck a landing... It was really with Heaven Sent where Capaldi reached his peak as a performer in that show, in terms of him being the Doctor. But then it was completely counteracted by Hell Bent. And then Season 10 was uh, much more like, straightforward and didn't quite give Capaldi as much to work with, with the exception of The Doctor Falls. But, yeah, so with the Capaldi era, he easily had like the weakest Christmas specials. Like, the last, like, last Christmas... The Husbands of River Song, Twice Upon a Time, Return of Doctor Mysterio, completely disposable. He was in four Christmas specials. If you don't count Time of the Doctor, you know you don't. That's a Matt Smith Christmas special. He was in four Christmas specials, but none of them were good. Like they were fine, like average, mediocre. They were nothing more than average at best, and that hurts the show. Like I keep saying, when you have a Christmas special. Put your best foot forward. And they never do. They never do. And it's really frustrating. So for the Capaldi era as a whole, you have great episodes like Flatline, 
or the world enough in time and heaven sent like it, although when you consider that they are like part of a two-parter like hellbent completely nullifies heaven sent in my opinion and the doctor falls is a downgrade from the world enough in time but still a, a solid story still a solid ending but then twice and then twice upon a time is like what what are you even doing what what's going on here so but with the capaldi era in my opinion if you if you count two parts as what as, as one story there was not one 10 out of 10 story or like maybe you maybe had like one 9 out of 10 story with flatline um and you had a bunch of decent ones and some good ones but you never had an episode whereas with with the matt smith era you had like the girl who waited or vincent and the doctor and with the tenant era you had midnight or the girl in the fireplace and even with eccleston you had dalek and the parting of the ways and bad wolf you had these amazing stories where you can just tell somebody i don't care if you don't like doctor who this is great tv and you should watch it and they would come and watch it but with Capaldi, you never had that. You didn't have that. Even when you had something like Heaven Sent, if you talk about it as strictly a single story with Face the Raven or ju- or just Hell Bent, it never quite met that quality standard that TV, if it needs to survive long term, needs to have. And the, with the Stephen Moffat, it, with the Capaldi era, it was the Stephen Moffat show. It was you see so many tropes repeated. You see so many insufferable characters and annoying characters and insipid dialogue and plot strands that repeat themselves and formulas that repeat themselves. And it just kind of got an audience's nerves and grated on them. And I've said it before. I'll say it again. I've I know so many people who were kind of into the series, but then the moment Peter Capaldi stepped out. Of the, uh, on top of the tank playing the electric guitar in The Magician's Apprentice, so many people said, I'm done. I'm not watching this anymore. And I don't blame them. I don't blame them. It was stupid in like in, in every like conceivable way. Even stupid things like in The Magician, Magician's Apprentice, when Missy has that meeting with Clara in... Was it Ven- It was in a like, European city or a courtyard or something. And there's, like, unit soldiers. There's soldiers around the perimeter not letting anybody in so that Missy and Clara can be alone. And they have this dialogue. And then a woman walks in with a pet dog. She just walks straight through the friggin' perimeter just so that Missy can be like, you see that? Those two. The doctor's the owner and you're the pet. Like, that's all. And and that may seem like a nitpick, but one, it's stupid when watching it. When you see this woman with the dog walk through the perimeter... You can see the guards in the background, uh, but people pick up on that. Or general audience members pick up on that, and they mock it, and they say how stupid it is. And when you have, like, three or four moments like that per episode of a Stephen Moffat script, it grates on them. It gets to them, and they think, I'm not watching this anymore. There's clearly no thought to the writing. The writer doesn't respect my intelligence remotely, which there's a lot of times when Stephen Moffat just does not respect the audience one iota. Not all the time. But sometimes, and enough to make a difference. And unfortunately, Peter Capaldi as the Doctor, uh, was he was like the collateral damage for that. You had Pearl Mackey as a great companion. You had Matt Lucas being surprisingly great as Nardole. And you have Peter Capaldi, who is a terrific actor, one of the most talented to play the Doctor, being like, taking part in these stories and these plot lines, which audiences weren't enjoying or appreciating or engaging with. And since he's the lead, he kind of has to suffer the consequences of that. I'm not saying that anybody blamed Peter Capaldi. I don't think anyone did. 
but he was the collateral damage for that and it it was very disappointing and i hope that in the near future if there is a multi-doctor story that peter capaldi can come back and i love everything peter capaldi has done for the fandom and everything he did outside of the show how he would pose for photos how he would attend charity events he would attend like doctor who exhibitions like completely just he'd just turn up on the day and be in character as the doctor when was it the doctor who experience there was a convention or something when they had the tardis set and a bunch of kids were exploring the set. And all of a sudden, Capaldi walks in, in character, unannounced, and starts interacting with the kids. And he does a full-on Q&A. Like, that's wonderful. That's terrific. And he would send he sent that letter to that boy who was really sad Capaldi was going to leave. He sent that letter to the young boy who was really ill or sick or had lost a family member or something. I can't remember exactly. Sent a video message in character as the doctor saying everything was going to be okay. I, you can't fault Capaldi. You can't fault his performance. You can't fault everything he gave to the program. I just wish that the stories and the plot lines had been on his level. I felt like he was not done justice by the program. And in the near future, whether Big Finish picks him up and does extra adventures with him and Nardole, or him and River Song, or him and Clara, or him and Bill and Nardole, whatever it takes, I hope that there's more of him in the near future. He's one of the older actors to play the Doctor, if not the oldest. And he's certainly the oldest living actor to play the Doctor. But he's he's got some enthusiasm in him. He's got some life in him. And I hope he takes a break for maybe a couple of years and comes back for the 60th anniversary. Or comes back in the near future for Big Finish like David Tennant has done. I would love that. And I think the fandom would love it. The fandom would love it if the Big Finish writers got a hold of Capaldi's Doctor. They've done wonders for Colin Baker's sixth Doctor. And he's been redeemed in so many eyes of, of like, in the eyes of the fandom for the most part. And Capaldi needs a similar level of reappreciation. Maybe not him, but his era. And that would be great. I think that would be wonderful. And and I hope in the near future, Peter Capaldi is still seen as one of the best actors to play the Doctor, or at least, like bare minimum, one of the most courteous. So that's everything. Welcome to the Film Brits podcast. Thank you very much for listening. I massively appreciate you sticking with me for over an hour talking about like eight or nine trailers and taking those questions. I massively appreciate the support. Once again, if you'd like to support the podcast financially, you can do so via Patreon. Links will be in the show notes in the description below. If you're subscribed on iTunes, please be sure to rate, rate and review it. I'd massively appreciate that. And folks, I will see you next time. Ooh, ooh, one last thing, one last thing. This is going to be the last episode I record before my birthday, and I'm going to be away next week for work on my birthday. I'm going to be away working on a show in London for about 10 days. So no podcast next week. I'll come back the week after. So yeah, happy birthday to me, and I shall see you in two weeks. Take care, guys.